1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Bay Area is associated with the future, the beeping shiny future, the cyberpunk future, the cars that make no sound future. But rooted in the long tradition of black speculative thought, Afrofuturism also grew here in the late 60s as jazz futurist Sun Ra lectured at Berkeley and the Black Panthers organized to transform the region into part of a network of revolution. A new exhibition, Mothership, Voyage into Afrofuturism at the reopening Oakland Museum of California, explores the variety of ways that black people in the global diaspora have imagined liberation, space travel, ancestral reconnection, the divine feminine, and much more. We'll board the mothership with the curators that's coming up on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In 1963, a black youth pastor, Orville Lester, spoke to a documentary film crew about his experience coming west.
2: I thought coming to California was going to uh, be a better place. It has been. But I think that once you wake up one morning, you look out and you see the Pacific Ocean, and you say, well, there's no place else to go. I must take a stand now. And uh, so this is what has happened to a lot of Negroes who have come to the West Coast. There isn't any place else
3: to go.
1: There was no geographic escape from the inequalities and contradictions of being black in America. But what if there were other means of transcendence? Over the following years, composer Sun Ra would land in Berkeley, musician George Clinton would launch his mothership, and Octavia Butler would begin publishing. In the 90s, scholar Alondra Nelson would begin the organized study of these efforts under the banner of Afrofuturism. And now, a new generation of artists has tapped into, transmogrified, critiqued, and toyed with Afrofuturism in their art and it's that endless reinvention the combination of mundane everyday and celestial radiance that forms the core of the new show at the oakland museum of california mothership voyage into afrofuturism which opens this weekend to the public and we're now joined by the curators of the show Rhonda Pignotti, lead curator oakland museum of california for this show welcome ronda
4: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah. And we're also joined by Essence Harden, the consulting curator on the show. Welcome, Essence.
4: Hi.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> so good to have you both here. Um, saw the show yesterday. It's fantastic and so, so interesting. Um, but for people who, you know, won't get a chance to go until Saturday, listening here on Friday, can you introduce us to the idea of this show, Rhonda? Yeah, sure.
4: Yeah. Um, so yeah, the show, as you mentioned, I love your intro to the show, um, focuses on Afrofuturism and there are so many ways to define Afrofuturism. Um, you know, The basic sort of thinking is that it imagines the past, the present and the future through a black cultural lens. And it's basically a theory of knowledge that draws from the African diaspora. And it's often speculative in nature, like you talked about Octavia Butler, Um, So there's, you know, there's spirituality, technology, science fiction, fantasy, um, and a common thread is um, the manipulation of time. And Afrofuturism will often collapse the past, the present, and the future into a singular experience or recontextualize a historical moment. And and by doing this, you know, it's uh, sort of providing a platform for reclaiming Black narratives and creating bold territories of Black space making and this project emphasizes um, elements of Afrofuturism that are looking at Black feminism and Black joy, um, and especially the mundane. You know, I, I, we'll go more into that later, but you know, there's definitely, the, it has its dazzling moments in the show, but we wanted to keep it grounded in the elements that honor and value ordinary everyday Black life.
1: Mm-hmm. Essence. Maybe you can walk us in. Like, what did you want people to see and feel as they entered this exhibition?
5: Ooh, walk us in. Yeah, so, you know, the the entry point is really kind of three figures, um, Octavia Butler, Cindy Kane, and Nicole Mitchell. You um, have an image of Butler, which grounds us. Um, you know, the exhibition has four parts, and the first part is Dawn. And we wanted the experience to sort of be this um planetarium womb-like feel right so it's a it's darker it's um ethereal music playing and there is this incredible mural by sydney kane that accompanies like the wall space and so it feels like you're walking into a different landscape it slows down the rhythm is really engaging around kind of like your senses getting you ready to yeah you're like like immersed
1: yeah absolutely
5: right and so like that's sort of what we felt like if you're thinking through how to kind of slow people um, to, you know, get ready for what they are about to experience in the space then to do that kind of pattern setting. It really took, you know, Octavia Butler for us and then obviously for Nicole Mitchell and Sydney Kane to sort of ground us in a sonic and visual experience, which ultimately kind of serves the the force in the show, which is Octavia Butler's writing. Um, and yeah, that's sort of like practice with uh, black feminism and Afrofuturism.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah, everyone gets channeled through Octavia Butler at the beginning, which seemed like a wise decision to me. But what, why is Octavia so Butler so important as a cultural figure generally, and also within the context of this show? And uh, yeah, uh, Essence, let's let's keep going with you, Essence.
5: Yeah, sure. So you know, so we had the chance to go to the Huntington and Pasadena, which is where all of Octavia's archive is. Um, And, you know, part of the archive has been published through, like, Clock Shop and other organizations in Los Angeles, but really getting a feel for how she created all these kind of affirmations, right, um, to get her through the process of writing incredible novels, to get her to the process of ultimately being able to, you know, buy her mother a house, live in Washington to explore the world, that kind of, you know, praxis, right, this idea of, like, her being an incredible science fiction writer, but also, her manifesting that through this own, her own kind of meditative actions, for us felt like an angle within Afrofuturism that we could design, right? That we could look at an actual person who is certainly celebrated for, you know, Kindred, for Parable, the Parable series, for the Xenogenesis series for Lilith Brood and so forth, but also was living a life that really was a sort of black futurist vision, right? That Octavia wrote herself into history And she wrote herself into history by also really creating um, like a meditative act on the backs of her binders and these little note cards to uh, manifest what she wanted. And that felt like a drive in particular that we were interested in. Like how do you not only think of Octavia's world that she created, but also the world in which she inhabited herself.
1: Mm And if you want to see what some of those look like, I tweeted them this morning I'm at Alexis Madrigal. You can go take a look. You can see Octavia Butler's own hand um, in the way that she kind of psyched herself up. That was kind of what those those are about, you know, her own notes to self about how to write. Um, Rhonda, um, you know, Oakland's black history can sometimes be reductively presented as kind of like Great Migration, Black Panthers, gentrification, you know, and that's and that's sort of it. Um, how did you attempt to weave in the sort of extremely charismatic, you know, Panthers history um into this show on Afrofuturism and, and what role do they play in this vision of of Afrofuturism that you're presenting us with?
4: Yeah, sure. Um the, the Panthers specifically or Yeah,
1: the Panthers specifically, yeah. I think, yeah.
4: Well, you know, at the beginning of the project, um, it was as we sort of started to meet with different artists who are who are looking at the themes of Afrofuturism that, you know, and especially as a um, non-Black curator, it was important for me to sort of provide more just like a platform and kind of like step away and allow the process to unfold naturally. So when we invited, you know, we ended up working with over 50 contributors on the project and a lot of people we spoke with who did talk about either the Panthers in this context, or um, like you said, the great migration, you know, we wanted to um, sort of, you know, I sort of stepped away from the process and let the artists and the community organizers um, weave the story. And then it was sort of my role to kind of um, draw out the threads and see where there were connections, you know? And so, um, because I'm also not from Oakland, that's why, you know, it was really essential to have Essence on the product who, uh, project who is from Oakland. Um, and then also, Renee de Guzman, who worked earlier on in the project as well, did his show, um, The Panthers at 50, um, a couple of years ago. And um, so we drew from sort of their visionary thinking around, um, like the top of the hour when you had the um, audio about sort of coming to the West and seeing this as the final frontier. And, and it was just, you know, time to sort of put down roots and have a visionary view of what Oakland could be. And so we, we did, you know, integrate stories around gentrification and black space making and the work of the black cultural zone that they're doing now to create black spaces in Oakland. So it was basically about just sort of like following the narrative of the people who we invited to participate in the project.
1: Yeah. You know, there's um, one of the things that might be interesting for people to know is that in this um, in this exhibition, there are both sort of futuristic components and, and art. Um, there's also these older bits um, like W.B. Du Bois' uh, visualizations of Black life um, in America in the early 20th century. And I was wondering if... Uh, Essence, you could talk to us a little bit about why you included some of these more historical pieces into the show.
5: Sure. I mean, part of it for us was thinking about the everyday experience of being a Black person and the ways that race also operates as a technology and Afrofuturism, right, is, you know, generally interested in technology and the in its relationship to Blackness and Black people. So, For us, I think, you know, how do you ground it in something that's less spectacular, but deeply meaningful to folks actual lived realities. Um, So we have Sandra Bean footage, which was this sort of like person in Oakland who has who has all these kind of family archives of black Oakland back in the day, like in the 30s and 40s. Um, We have, you know, historical artifacts of the Pullman porters, which is important for the, you know, blooming, you know, at one point blooming black residents um, of Oakland and then we have Khalil Joseph's Black News and that is just sort of long-standing project that is constantly being renegotiated it's a media representation of black people from Twitter and uh, Instagram and other social media platforms combined with like produces uh, pieces that they produce um, to create this new kind of network of kind of Black media representation. And it's a live stream, so it's changing all the time and nothing, you know, no two parts are the same. But all those things for us kind of felt like folks can see themselves in it, they can see their families in it, and they can know that they also belong to it. Folks being the Black people from Oakland and Black people who get to live in Oakland. um, And I felt it was like a particular angle that was a way to ground it in something more than the fantastical, because I think, you know, being a Black person is, certainly lots of things. And Afrofuturism is really beautiful in its capacity to imagine futures um, that are bold and dynamic. And also, I think that dynamicism comes in people creating their own archives. It comes in people experiencing, you know, pleasure and joy and private and public spaces. It comes in, you know, sharing your baby or yourself on social media, right? And like all those things for us are a part, that kind of what I would say is like a black epi- epistemology, yeah. a way of like creating black
1: knowledge. Yeah. We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition titled Mothership, Voyage into Afrofuturism with Essence Harden, the consulting curator, and Rhonda Pignozzi, the curator at the Oakland Museum of California. And we're going to go into this break here in the sound of Sun Ra. Space is the Place. More of our conversation on Afrofuturism coming up. You're listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal.
0: Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition, Mothership, Voyage into Afrofuturism. And that was the song Liberated Woman by Ranking Anne, which can be found on a special Spotify playlist curated for the exhibition by Paul Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky. And we want to hear from you. When you hear the term Afrofuturism, what images, sounds, people, and ideas come to mind? What Afrofuturist artists or works of art do you love and want to shout out for me it is octavia butler and the parable of the sower uh give us a call now at 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can also get in touch on twitter and facebook we are at kqd forum or you can email your questions to forum at kqd.org and we do have the show's curators here with us Rhonda Pagnozzi and essence harden um one of the major themes of the show is, as we've mentioned, is this emphasis on black feminist thought within Afrofuturism. And I was hoping, Rhonda, you could start to pull on that thread for us and sort of where you saw that coming into play within the larger Afrofuturistic universe and how that gets presented within the show.
4: Yeah, thanks. Um, the you know the as Essence described the entrance of the show for me. That's when it started to really come to life um, because both um, Sydney Kane, who produced the mural, and Nicole Mitchell, who um, developed the original soundscape for the space, which we actually partnered with Dolby uh, Laboratories to create this amazing sound surround surround sound experience in there. Um, both of those artists were really looking at um, the way Afrofuturism holds. Black spiritual traditions as sacred, but as well as positioning Black women in queer life at the forefront. So their, their synergy there started to really um bring sort of Black feminism to the, the, the height for me of the show for me, and especially because they um they center their work around the work of Octavia Butler. And so much of Octavia's works is um is sort of feminist, gender fluid sort of um experience around the how is she speculating the world through that lens? So when that started to sort of gel and the three of those women started to um, create this entrance space um, and we decided to title it Dawn, which is after um, an uh, Octavia Butler book, it just felt natural to have the show have that through line and have the power of Black feminist thought throughout the, the entire exhibition.
1: Essence, can you describe one of the works in the show um, that you feel like from a, a contemporary artist that you feel like um, expands on the work of Octavia Butler and the other Black feminist um, leaders that you have in the show?
5: Ooh. Um, well, I love Salem Belki's... Uh, I I'm, hope I'm not ruining your last name as I just said that. But Salem has an installation in the show, and it's just really incredible, quiet... Um, piece from the outside and it's also next to the mothership which can kind of be misleading you're like oh where am I at but when you walk into the installation space it's this three-channel um, fully immersive experience and it's really about you know time uh, the African diaspora it, it feels like you're floating between they're from Ethiopia but they are like have lived in California and the bay for a long time and their family's here too in Sacramento and so like there's this flow of of time and a collapse that feels really present. Um, That also, because Salim is kind of taking you through different travels as a video piece and a sound piece, you don't quite know where you are. And I feel like that kind of energy is something that, uh, you know, Octavia really offered us, which is, you know, she's writing in her moment about her time and imagining other spaces, but also that moment feels like it could be any time for a lot of us, right? And that's also kind of what Salem's piece does. It, it takes you from you know, the Bay and Los Angeles to um, Ethiopia. And I, I really love it. It's a really powerful and beautiful piece. And it also feels like the way that the Oakland Museum is able to support emerging artists, to support artists who aren't necessarily represented, but who are doing really incredible, thoughtful work.
1: That's cool. You know, there's a, a very simple piece in the show um, that's by Alicia Wormsley. And she's ha- she bought a billboard in Pittsburgh and said, there are Black people um, in the future. Essence, I thought, you know, it's a, it's a simple statement along the lines, it's almost like Black Lives Matter, but in this futurist context, could you sort of reflect on, you know, it kind of sits over the top of the, of the whole show. Um, can you kind of reflect on, on what it means in this context?
5: Sure. You know, it's an affirmation. It's a proclamation and i think for black people to see it and to know it and to feel it it's it's vital right to and the way that butler is using her you know the back of her notebook to manifest herself um into a different future where she has you know success economically um and also with her own writing i think alicia b. wormsley is telling black folks like th- this is our truth right that like our existence which is you know and nothing but I mean, not nothing, but it's in a constant state of terror and threat. Um, and it's more than that, but also that is part of the experience, especially here um, in the West, that it's a proclamation for something different. It's a proclamation to continue on. And I think it also, much like, I guess, Black Lives Matter, for non-Black people, it is a is a way of, like, um, <laughs> I guess, contextualizing a space that Black people continually will belong to, that, you know, the desire to extinguish our existence is something that um, ultimately is a, a failed cause. And I think Leisha B. Wormsley, you know, allowing us to have it in the exhibition and sort of just how it really resonated with people um, via that Pittsburgh um, billboard ad is something that we really, we really wanted to ground in because I think if, if Butler is the way that we're trying to frame this, then ultimately that kind of meditative act um, is something that, that shows up again and again within the exhibition. So there are Black people in the future.
1: And it definitely seems important in a you know set of cities that have lost tens of thousands of uh, Black people over the last few decades, too. Um, Rhonda, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, this show is reopening. It's the reopening show for Oakland Museum of California, which has been closed um, for quite some time. Can you just tell people a little bit about the, the reopening and how you think this show interacts with sort of the the museum's overall mission?
4: Yeah, sure. You know, last year was, you know... Obviously, difficult for many people, and um, for the museum, we also had an intense reorganization where we, you know, took pause and reflected on, you know, the systemic racism that's inherent in a lot of museums, and um, and 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 so you know we did a really great self reflection and had a lot of really difficult conversations that led to a reorganization of the staff and. Um, thinking about how to dismantle some level layers of hierarchy in uh, the work that we do and create a system of more shared leadership. So, you know, there's still a gap from where we we need to go and where we want to be as a museum, but we are definitely on that path, and and I'm very hopeful. So there was that was going on behind the scenes, um, but then to open up and to have this show be the first show that a lot of museum goers will go to was um, Is exciting um, and a little scary, but I'm glad that, you know, we started working on this project in 2019. So, you know, it was before 2020 happened. Um, And it's interesting to think about Octavia's writing in that context because, you know, the parable series was written in the 90s, but um, it's set in the 2020s where, you know, society has reverted into chaos due to devastating wealth inequality and global warming and diseases and a racist president. And so, you know, when those themes started to become more relevant, tragically 2020 started to look more like Octavia's 2020. um, And as Essence often points out too, is that, you know, she was living that then, you know Mm -hmm. so it's not that much of a stretch, but um, it was, you know it became like, you know, and a really a really salient message to be sharing with the public right now. So in a way, I am excited that um, this is the show that we're opening up with to invite people in and to, um, you know, celebrate Black joy and, um, you know, celebrate Black life in this way.
1: Yeah, I love the. There's a quote up on the wall in the um, exhibition right now. By Octavia Butler, I don't predict the future. All I do is look around at the problems we are neglecting now and give them about thirty years to grow right into right at thirty years. disasters. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition titled "Mothership: Voyage into AfroFuturism," which opens tomorrow with Rhonda Penozzi, who you just heard, and Essence Harden. We'd also like to add in D. Scott Miller, Managing Editor of the East Bay Express, and he's actually in the show. His work, Afro Surreal Manifesto, is featured in the exhibition. Welcome to the show, D. Scott. Hey, thank you for having me. So for people who haven't been to the show, which is almost everybody listening, uh, can you describe the Afro Surreal Manifesto? What what does it look like and, and what does it say?
6: Oh, okay. Well, the Afrocentric Manifesto was actually originally published in the San Francisco Bay Guardian back in 2009, May 2009. Um, It was picked up again by uh, University of, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the School of the Arts in Chicago and Columbia University in Chicago, and reprinted um, in a small. I would say, I I want to call it a pamphlet. It's more of a pamphlet. It's beautiful.
1: It's a beautiful pamphlet, though. Yeah. Yeah.
6: yeah, Created by Ben Blount and uh, Krista Franklin for an exhibit and a lecture that I did there in 2013.
1: And how do you see the relationship between the Afrofuturism and the Afro-surreal?
6: Well, I mean, like, I I found out about maybe three years ago that uh, Octavia Butler had a copy of my novella, Not From Here in Her Personal Effects. Um, and uh, it is currently at the Huntington, so I'm glad someone brought that up. Um, it's, it's called Not From Here, and I don't know how Octavia Butler got it, but she <laughs> did. And um, I've always had this connection with Afrofuturism. Um, in 1994, I was working at a bookstore called Modern Times that was next door to a New College in uh, San Francisco, and Mark Derry came and, and presented the book Flame Wars there. And in Mark Derry was the, the guy who the, originally
1: coined the term yeah,
6: Afrofuturism. Did. The guy who originally coined the term Afrofuturism did so in this book called Flame Wars that came out in 1994. Um, I was there, I didn't, I didn't need him, but I did get the book and I read it. So I knew what the word Afrofuturism was in 94. And then in uh, 1999, I began working with a, a poet Giovanni Singleton, California Book Award winner, um, on this uh, poetry journal called Nocturne's Literary Review. And from that relationship, I ended up working with um, uh, some people who got me involved in the Afrofuturism Listserv that was started by Alondra Nelson and Paul uh, Miller, DJ Spooky. Um, and that was in like, say, 98, maybe 98, 99, something like that. Um, and, and, and so I've, I've always been kind of connected to Afrofuturism. And, and and one of the reasons that I was inspired to write the Afro School Manifesto was because I felt that there were things that needed to be further examined within um, what we call, I guess they now call the canon of Afrofuturism, and Afrofuturism in a lot of ways was kind of unable to do that at the time because we didn't really have that much material, you what know? Was, and,
1: yeah, what you know, was missing? To... What was missing from it?
6: Um, well, I mean, like d- during, the, during the listserv, we just didn't have that much content. I mean, we could talk about W.E.B. Boyz's uh, The Comet. We could talk about Lando Calrissian um and alondra nelson did a lot of interesting things they ended up actually being her her, her her she ended up writing books like medical apartheid where she was talking about how technology was actually something that was, was was every time there was new technology was first experimented on on black people you know so those kind of things but after that I, I found we couldn't talk for example about ishmael Reed. we couldn't talk for example about henry dumas and i was a major fan of dumas back then and he was he's a fantastic speculative writer um but he didn't write about futuristic items so I said, what we need is we need to have an outskirt that we can actually do address these other speculative realms within the black cultural production. Okay. And, and that included Henry Dumas, uh, Mary Baraka, Zora Neale Hurston. We never talked about Zora because Zora did not write science fiction. You know? so, and that, so what I did was I, I wrote the manifesto in a lot of ways as a guidepost towards these gaps mm-hmm. that I found in, in Afrofuturism. Kind of yeah, add,
1: yeah, draw in the constellation where the star of Afrofuturism is kind of sitting here in black spectrum of well, yeah, thought.
6: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and also, I mean, like, the, the, also the thing was that I found that the major problem was probably the temporality of it. The whole thing that it had to be about the future. We had to talk about the future. And, and, and I was like, do we have to talk about the future? Let's talk about the present, you know? And, 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 and Amir Baraka had written this thing called Henry Dumas, Afrofuturism Expressionist, in 19, sorry, 1974, he wrote this thing called Henry Dumas, Afro-surveill-expressionist. And in it, he says that, like, you know, Black life is almost in a constant present. We, we live in a constant present. And, 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 and the reason why we have to have that constant present is because we actually exist in a world that is rooted in the first absurd notion that race is an actual thing. And that, not just that race is an actual thing, but, but, but to be Black is to have certain attributes placed upon you. That we know or observe you know and, and and so what what he said was, was this like you know to be black in america in, in in the contemporary time and place and 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 um john paul sartre said the same thing about surrealism when he was hanging out um with uh leopold seymour he said like you know um like it is it is surreal because it's black and it is black because it's surreal like but the connection between surrealism and blackness was there already. And, and when Baraka did that and I talked to him about it and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to write a manifesto that actually reflects this, this contemporized Blackness.
1: And D. Scott, I think we actually have another Afro-surrealist on the phone right now. Um, can we bring in Ellen Hayward? Ellen from Hayward, excuse me.
2: <laughs> Hi, yes, my name's Ellen McBurnett, actually, and I'm located in Hayward, California, but I am the organizer of the Afro-surrealist Writers' Workshop in Oakland, and we've been around for about five years, a little longer than five years. Um, we meet and support writers who are working in this genre, and I'm excited to talk to you all about Afrofuturism and Afro-surrealism. I'm so glad that you brought Afro-surrealism into the discussion.
1: Well, um, Ellen, how do you see recreate... that relationship? Yeah.
2: Oh, it's two sides of the same coin. Afrofuturism is dreaming our future. Afro-surrealism is reimagining our past and present. Um, they connect. Um, the writers have written in both genres, often in the same excuse me, in the same story. Um, afro surrealism casts a wide net. Of course, Tony Morrison in writing "Beloved," that was afro-surrealism. Um, Colson Whitehead's um, "The Underground Railroad." Yeah. Or the
1: intuitionist. yeah.
2: Yeah. Exciting, very yeah. exciting. Um, yeah, uh, you we're know, having our next meeting actually on the twenty second, and we were hoping to have it in the Oakland Museum's garden. So uh, yeah, I'm so excited to be talking to you all.
1: uh thank you so much, Ellen and Rhonda Pignosi, I wanted to ask you about the inclusion of Afro surrealism, another form of you know black speculative thought, into a show on Afrofuturism. What was that? And it's right at the beginning, you know. So I was wondering, you know, what you were thinking um, in in placing it there and giving it that sort of place of honor
4: well it's interesting you say it's right at the beginning because we actually deliberately made it the second section um because you know we wanted to um lead with the black feminist thinking Mm -hmm. around afrofuturism and then you know have it just kind of like one step in Um, but you know the afro surreal aspect you know to me that's always been yeah a really intriguing Layer of Afrofuturism, and so that's why you know we invited D. Scott to our initial convening so that he could contribute some insight around um, how Afro surreal shows up in Afrofuturism. And I love how the caller uh, talked about it, and I'd love to connect with you around your writing workshop, Helen, um, to you know to create some programming. But yeah, you know, I mean, the, the Afro surreal it, it really gets at this other layer and for me it's you know artworks and stories that use metaphor and beautiful poetry and manipulated imagery to illustrate surreal parallel universes um but reshape them into these you know sublime black-centered visions and that's why we have you know one of the highlights in that section is um wingichi mutu's piece that we deliberately put you know sort of adjacent to Scott's um, Surreal Manifesto because yeah. they both speak to um, yeah, this, this concept of Afro Surreal in that way.
1: We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition titled Mothership Voyage into Afrofuturism, which opens tomorrow with Rhonda Penosi, Essence Hardin, and we've been joined by D. Scott Miller, Managing Editor of the East Bay, whose work is in the show. I'm Alexis Madrigal, this is Forum. We'll be back with more after the break and some Grace Jones. coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, do deadlines make your blood run cold and yet you still find yourself procrastinating? Or are you someone who feels you need a deadline to get anything done, or someone who views them as suggestions? We'll explore the psychological and social reasons why deadlines inspire such a range of emotions, And we want to hear your reflections on the topic. Just don't wait until the last minute. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. That was a bit of Rebirth of Slick by Diggable Planets. You can find that song and more on a Spotify playlist created for the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition on Afrofuturism. It was created by DJ Spooky, and we are talking about that exhibition with the show's curators, Rhonda Pagnozzi, the lead curator of the show, and Essence Hardin, who was the consulting curator. And we've been getting some great um, comments from people. Really interesting um, work. Um, Anna writes, I came to Butler's work through the Detroit activist Adrian Marie Brown's book Emergent Strategy, which uses Butler's canon to imagine a new future. What can Afrofuturism help us see in the future of the Bay Area? In essence, I know you're from here. So why don't you um, take that question from Anna?
5: Okay, let's see. What can Afrofuturism help with revisiting the Bay Area? I mean, I think that, I think what Afrofuturism can provide is just the re uh, re, a a way to rewire space, a way to rethink spatiality, a way to think about other ways of belonging um, to the place and making it, you know, viable and sustainable. And so I think, you know, there's like, there is gardening, there is landscaping, there is a way of like connecting with, especially in the Bay Area, like the Ohlone people and the indigenous people of the land as Black people and creating, you know, like a, a multi front um, of, a, of a new space that can be not only like decolonial, but also really encompass like you know, the people who are non-colonizers, the Black people who are of the space and the indigenous um, people of the land too, right? I think Afrofuturism, I think Adrienne Marie Brown in particular with um, Octavius Brood definitely gives you a way to think about just sort of, you know, the fire season that is permanent space now for us, the the lack of water um, and ways of really grounding in what community looks like. And part of Octavia's work is also, you know, yes, it is about Black people, but also it is sort of, you know, especially in the Parable series, how do you connect with people who are gonna have the same kind of ethics and energy going forward with you? And I think that that is something that the Bay Area likely could use um, and can certainly do. And I hope that the sort of ecology matter that happens that's happening within California is something that Afrofuturism can provide a sort of new framework for living, And having like lives that are sustainable in a state that is in a really unsustainable situation currently. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about one more Bay Area related relationship in the show, um, and that's the film that plays um, in the show called Sun Ra Space is the place which was filmed in oakland and berkeley in the early 1970s and has some great shots of what must be maybe tilden or redwood park can we hear i think we have a cut from space is the place Uh, i think it's cut two on the sheet um and we can all kind of listen to it together and then we'll talk
7: the music is different here the vibrations are different not like planet Earth. Ray. Planet Earth, sound of guns, anger, frustration. There was no one to talk to from planet Earth to understand. We set up a colony of black people here. See what they can do on the planet all their own without any white people there. They could drink in the beauty of this planet. It
1: would affect their vibrations for the better, of course. Rhonda, I'd love you to situate this cut for us. Like, what was this film?
4: Yeah, so if, if for folks who haven't seen the film, yeah, um, Sun Ross sort of um, is moving through um, Oakland and Berkeley and talking, well, before that scene, he's actually trying to um, convince the black people of the Bay Area that, um, and of the earth that um, there's, no, there's no other solution here on earth, that we've, we've tried everything and um, to escape from the brutality and the anti-black racism in the earth, we just need to go start and, and colonize our own planet actually is the way he talks about it a little bit. But on that scene, um, those are the images we have in the, in the <clears throat> exhibition is him walking around on this new planet. Reflecting on how, you know, what would it be like, you know, which is a big foundation for for Afrofuturism is this idea of speculative thinking, like, what would it be like if we, you know, if black people could live outside of that realm of racism and um, brutality and, you know, the air feels different. And so he's he's inviting us to just imagine this world in this way. And that's a, you know, a huge part um, that I hope people will take away with the show and thinking about you know, whose imagination are we living in now? You know, who created this experience that we're having? And that's the the strength of Afrofuturism is the way it recontextualizes moments of time and collapses them in a way that allows us to have a more expansive thought about how we could live in the world. And to the point earlier about Essence was talking about with the Bay Area and thinking about Afrofuturism, you know, that's why we ended the show in uh, the section called Earthseed to provide a space for people to reflect on, you know, what are Black spaces? How, how can we imagine Black spaces in a new frame? Or, you know, at least, you know, create bold territories that already exist, but just thinking about them in this more expansive way, obviously.
1: Yeah, we are talking about the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition titled, Mothership, Voyage into Afrofuturism, which opens tomorrow with Rhonda Pignosi and Essence Hardin. And we want to hear from you. When you hear the term Afrofuturism, What images, sounds, people, ideas, what comes to mind for you? And what Afrofuturist artists or works of art do you love and want to shout out? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We want to bring in Suzanne now into the conversation from Oakland. Hello. Welcome, to Um
8: Hi. I, this is a great show. I, I I um I'm very happy to have <laughs> turned it on right now, and a very deep piece of Afrofuturism that I think everybody listening, for the sake of Afrocentricness, needs to g- listen to Betty Davis, B E T T Y Davis, a singer in the funk, soul, rock, and R&D genre out of my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I'm proud of that. <laughs> um, and uh, she was married to Miles Davis for one year. And um, her whole image was so futuristic, so beyond her time. And her, her look, her songs, and like
6: oh, yes. a couple,
8: one of okay. them, the anti-love song is, is just a real good funk song. And then they say I'm different. She has about, let's see, one, two, three, four, five.
1: Four, yeah, those five, early five 70s albums, albums are, are so... He was yeah. a big freak is also pretty
8: good. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah, she was just amazing. and. She and uh it just fits in it should be the back some of the background music in the <laughs> show that you guys are speaking of cuz it would just fit so well in
1: there thank you so and much Susie. Yeah. yeah and go to the show i think you would like it they have the playlist playing there and they've got uh 100 plus tracks there that uh, they may not all be as good as betty davis but there's a lot of really good ones
8: right Right. Well they 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 can put some more in there. (laughs)
1: But I
8: definitely go to the show and bring friends.
1: Oh. Well thank you so much, Suzanne, for for that reflection. And I wanted you know, essence, I wanted to ask you about this, you know, there are different musical characters that are in the show. Sun Ra probably on the slightly less accessible jazz. Uh, people sometimes call them free jazz, but it's sort of, you know, you can't contain Sun Ra in quite that way. And then there's also a replica of the mothership of Parliament Funkadelic fame. Can you talk a little bit about the mothership and its role within this show?
5: Sure. Um, I mean, funk and Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton and, and co, that is about freedom, right? Like, funk is freedom. It's freedom from, I think, being penned down and caged in. It's freedom from known sonic experience. And I think the mothership, when they came down in 77, I think, oof, I think what we're playing is a a concert from 78 in Houston, but I think it came down originally in 77 at the Coliseum. And what that is, you know, is this otherworldly experience um, that's, you know, centered in a black urban space. And I think that kind of play that Parliament Funkadelic was able to do with mothership to kind of take you to take you away, but also like bring you back down. Is the kind of power of funk, and it feels absolutely delightful to see it recreated. And you get to walk underneath it and experience Spooky's uh, playlist, but also, you know, like watch Parliament Funkadelic do their thing in '78. And so, <laughs> I I love it. You know, like I think of like, current people who are making art in relationship to funk, like Lauren Hosley in Los Angeles, and sort of just how George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic are really you know, loved um, and were able to kind of do their thing and grow in the Bay Area and California overall is really important and vital to thinking of how Afrofuturism also is able to engage with the, the sonic um, and the performative landscape. And it was doing it in the seventies. And it also feels quite meaningful now.
1: Yeah, I also yeah. ended up really feeling looking at the mothership and thinking again about like the role that space, like the space race played in the American imaginary, right? This is very serious, sure. solemn, you know, supported by multiple, you know, we choose to go to the moon, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. they just are like parodying and just, just clowning the whole idea of the thing. And I, I couldn't help think of, you know, Gil Scott Heron too, with his yeah. Paul Whitey on the moon.
0: Um, exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 I think of that
5: every day often. <laughs> <And> I say
1: <laughs> yeah. it to myself. Rad time, but Chuck my Jay sister now. Whitey's on the moon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I
4: was going to say, that's a part of what makes their work so exciting and accessible because of they took, you know, some serious ideas and created this really fun way of entering into the conversation. And um, I also, like, music and the sonic uh landscape is such an important part of afrofuturism as well you know it's a music is a transcendental experience and even there's an element of time travel in music and um so music and sound is a really important part of the show just in general
1: yeah Um, a couple more music reflections and i'm going to change tacks here um Thomas Thomas writes about Jimi Hendrix, said, I've lived here before the days of ice, and of course this is why I'm so concerned, and I come back to find the stars misplaced and the smell of a world that's burned. Uh, Those were lyrics from Up From the Skies by Jimi Hendrix. Um, Rachel tweets, Afrofuturism includes the song The Deep by clipping of which the East Bay's David Diggs is a part. Speaking to your point, Rhonda. Um, Last... uh, uh, comment here. Noah writes, I'd be interested to know if Samuel R. Delaney, you know, kind of one of the heavy hitting sci fi writers of our time, figures at all in this exhibition. He's one of the first queer black San Franciscan writers to have been published in the 20th century and really paved the way for black speculative thought. Octavia Butler was actually a former student of his. I find him to be one of the most brilliant writers um, out there. Either if you want to take the Delaney question? That,
4: yeah, I can take that. Um, Yeah, there is um, a series but so name Brown is one of the artists in the show and he's a local artist also an Oakland art Oakland high school art teacher. Um, So he's working with our school groups actually to develop curriculum as well but he created this series that is inspired by Delaney's work. And, um, so we have one from one piece from that series actually in the section called um, imaginary worlds, and um, he so so the section sort of looks at different ways that. Afrofuturism looks to different imaginary worlds, such as Samuel Delaney's writing, and ways to enter into Afrofuturism through that lens.
1: Let's um, go to one more caller. Let's get Gary in Walnut Creek into the conversation. Hey, Gary, welcome. Hi. Uh
7: Go ahead. Well, I wanted to just share a story. I'm white. Uh, I, I grew up in the 40s and 50s as a youngster, becoming very interested in science fiction, and I used to use work, read a lot of comic books. And I remember a strip to this day regarding a uh, world that has been populated by robots very intelligent robots, and there are red ones and there are blue ones. And this man visits on a spaceship, and he goes out, and he's supposed to represent the the, uh, civilizations that are more advanced, and he's determining whether this society of robots is ready to join the rest of of, uh, those uh, civilized worlds and there's this great disparity between red ones and blue ones. And the blue ones have run down neighborhoods and they seem to be really struggling and the red ones are doing just fine. And it's a red robot that's taking him on this tour. And uh,
1: and what did, what did and you take away from the story, Gary?
7: Well, when the guy gets in his spaceship and to go home, he takes off his helmet and he's African-American. And it just stayed with me, that image of the, African American spaceman that represented the civilized worlds.
1: Yeah, oh, thank you for that, Gary. Really appreciate that. I have uh, one last question for the curators here. You know, in uh, Octavia Butler's books, Earthseed is a uh, is a religion, and one of the things that Earthseed, one of its tenets, is all that you change, all that you touch, you change, and all that you change changes you. Um, and I wanted to ask you each just with our last uh, few seconds of the show, how did making this exhibition change you? And we'll start with you, Rhonda.
4: Oh, wow. That's such a great question. Um, you know, this whole year, I feel like a different person, and it's hard to pull apart this show in this pandemic and this experience we've been living through and the, you know, global awareness around white supremacy and the conversations we've been having there. Um, you know, I, I think how this changed me, I think that it, it it really has expanded my imagination about what is possible and, um, just, you know, it, as much as we're coming out of this horrible time of death and mourning, you know, I feel like, um, I feel hopeful and I feel like, you know, there's opportunity to reshape and connect with, um, with these ideas in a new and exciting way that there there's possibility. I feel like there's, there's, there's more possibility in my, in my realm now.
1: In essence, I know it's a tough one, but in 30 seconds. (laughs)
5: Um, I, it changed me because I got to come home. This was the most time I've spent home since I moved to LA six years ago. And it's been really great to see how Oakland and the people who live here currently, what they're doing and, and shaping and, kind of yeah creating a space for for folks who exist outside of this moment oh.
1: Thank you. We've been talking about the Oakland Museum of California's new exhibition titled Mothership, Voyage into Afrofuturism, which opens tomorrow with Essence Hardin, the consulting curator, and Rhonda Penyotzi of the Oakland Museum of California. Forum is produced by Tina Larberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Carolyn Smith. Susan Britton is lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our acting senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, a hero, Katie McMurrin, Brandon Willard. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Offering. our executive editor is Ethan tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan we have a question about where to find the playlist that we've been playing things from from this uh, exhibition and we'll post the answer to our Twitter feed at KQED Forum stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim